Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, November the 8th, 2023. Uh, as always, I'm on the west coast of the United States. It's Quite a political week this week in the United States, especially the last couple of days. Yesterday was an election uh, on November the uh, on November the seventh, which uh, delivered, at least according to the Washington Post, few bright spots for the Republicans as political reality, according to the Post, hit home. Uh, the New York Times uh, echoes what the Wall Street, uh, what the Washington Post was suggesting, so arguing that abortion lifted the Democrats. Uh, that's one way of putting it, I guess. Uh, acknowledging that Biden is unpopular, but it doesn't really seem to matter. Meanwhile, um, the Republicans tonight are holding a presidential debate where Donald Trump won't be showing up. It's an opportunity for Haley and DeSantis to uh argue about whether or not they are real leaders or potential leaders to compete with donald trump and earlier this week cnn also ran an interesting poll suggesting that trump donald trump would narrowly beat biden in a hypothetical rematch so more and more political news what does it mean in terms of leadership what would a historian think my guest today on the show is quite a distinguished historian who a few years ago argued that historians shouldn't be pundits. Uh, and I'm going to try and get some punditry out of him. He's got a new book out today, uh, Warriors, Rebels and Saints, a book about leadership. Uh, Moshe, uh, Moshik uh, Temkin is joining us from Nantes in France, in northern France. Moshik, I'm going to ask you to be uh, a pundit just for a few uh, introductory seconds before we get into the book. What do you make sure. of everything that's happening in America, the three things that we talked about? The election yesterday, the Republican debate today, and this hypothetical poll asking Americans who they would vote for between uh, Biden and Trump. In, in the context of leadership, which is a, an area you're an expert on, both historically and conceptually. Sure, sure. So first, thanks, Andrew, for having me on. Uh, it's it's a it's a thrill and a and a pleasure. Um, I let's start with the final thing: the, this poll uh, that shows the Trump defeating Biden. It's a bit of a misleading poll, not because I don't think that Trump narrowly leads Biden. That's true, but what this uh, headline doesn't say is that both of these men are wildly, overwhelmingly unpopular uh, <laughs> with the American voters. Uh, I don't think either of them musters 40% uh, approval. Uh, that's more or less where Trump ended his presidency. That's more or less where Joe Biden is now. Um, so there might be a bit of a back and forth between the two of them. But I'd like us all to consider for a moment how uh, even after all this time, uh, the American political class is uh, potentially producing a presidential contest next year in which both of the candidates uh, are wildly uh, unpopular uh, for various reasons. Uh, and I just think that's that's a that's a very telling thing about leadership in the United States today and about uh, the the gap, I think, between uh, what the the public uh, continually signals that that it wants, left and right, center, however you put it, and what the uh, the two major parties are actually putting forth. So I think that's the first thing 
that comes to the, that, that comes to mind. It's just amazing that they would be the candidates, both of them. The second uh, is regarding you know no matter how unpopular Joe Biden may be as president, uh, it's clear that the Republican alternative, uh, in particular these sort of the people that are debating today without Trump, uh, they're you know they have no chance. It's not. They're nowhere near where Trump is in terms of the Republican primary voter. So they're obviously being rejected even by their own voters as, as, as presidential candidates. So even there, the leadership seems so meager uh, in terms of what the, what the public seems to be wanting. And then I just don't consider some of these people to be real leaders at all. Because for me, one of the most important criteria for what it is to be a leader in the first place, especially a political leader, is to actually address real problems. A lot of these politicians, especially on that side of the spectrum right now, don't seem to me to be addressing real problems at all. They seem to be addressing mostly fake problems or problems that are uh, narrowly constructed to appease a sliver of voters that might or might not determine uh, a primary. And that's not real uh, political leadership when you look at what, what it means what it means in history. On the issues, well, uh, we know if you look at poll after poll, there is a big gap between what the public uh, wants and what the public is getting politically. Many, their abortion, the, the Republicans pass, you know, rolling back abortions going back to before the 1970s. It's clearly not what the public wants, even most of their own public. I don't, you know, I don't see how that even works out strategically. So, if you want me to put it in historical perspective, being the pundit here, I would say that we are really in a moment now. We have been there for a while in the United States in which there is a striking, disturbing gap between what the public signals over and over again that it seeks and what they are being offered by their system, by the political system. And when you have such a gap, that causes all kinds of symptoms uh, and bizarre political choices, sometimes uh, even grotesque ones. And I think that the pundit class over the past several years has been struggling with the results of that. Uh, your new book, um, Warriors, Rebels and Saints, uh, has an interesting subtitle. Um, the Art of Leadership from Machiavelli to Malcolm X. I want to talk about both Machiavelli and Malcolm X later. But is that what Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis, if they were to pick up your book, would the message, the core message be, uh, Moshik, that um, leadership is an art rather than a science? Well, I don't know if how they, it would be actually interesting to see what they would make of the book. If they, I hope they, I hope they, I hope everybody, everybody reads it. Um, I wouldn't say more of an art than a science necessarily. I do, what I do think is that it's not a formula. I believe that uh, leadership, and this is something that constantly uh, is revealed by history, the cases that I work on that are in the book. Um, it's not something that you simply kind of learn techniques or you learn points or things that you have to emulate and then presto voila, you're a leader. I think that leadership emerges is created organically through crises, through situations, through historical moments that require leadership and particular kinds of leaders. And then within those contexts, uh, leaders 
can arise, they emerge, but then in order to become important and transformative leaders, they also have to be, uh, you know, they have to do things. They have to make an impact. They have to have influence. They have to have gravitas. Um, so what I do in the book is I take cases, and you mentioned a couple of them, which we see leaders that emerge from particular crisis moments, um, but then leave a lasting impact and legacy that sometimes changes the world, sometimes for better, hopefully better, but sometimes not. The one leader in terms of your theory who seems to be particularly interesting, I'm not sure how much you write about him in the book, is uh, Zelensky, the, uh, the, the, the Ukrainian leader who, as you suggested, uh, certainly didn't read any books on leadership. His background was as a comedian and as an entertainer. But he seems to have risen to the occasion, understanding the, the gravity of the situation and his role. Is he a model, a positive model in contrast with the the Donald Trumps, the Nikki Haley's, the um, uh, the Joe Bidens of the world? It's hard for me to, well, uh, the, the situations are not comparable uh, because Zelensky is a wartime uh, a leader who is, country has been invaded and attacked, right, by, by the neighbor, Russia, Putin. Um, so he's finding himself in a kind of crisis that certainly no one in the United States has faced in many, many decades. Um, and warfare on American soil is very rare and has not really happened in a very long time. So it's very difficult to compare. That being said, I think that, um, to be generous to him, uh, Mr. Zelensky has, seriously, has uh, certainly had to face a real crisis, a real problem, right? I talked about fake problems before. I think a lot of the times in countries that, uh, like the United States, don't really face that kind of existential crisis. There's a lot of manufactured issues, a lot of distractions of the public. Uh, again, whatever they're going to discuss in the Republican presidential primary today, I guarantee you that it will have very little bearing on real problems facing people in the country. Whereas Zelensky is dealing with a major problem, which is that his country has been invaded. Now, you're right, it's interesting. Uh, few people, I think, knew who Mr. Zelensky, outside of you know the, his region and his country, knew who he was before the war started uh, in the Ukraine. His background is, in fact, in, in television and entertainment. He's a, he's, a, he's, a com he's a comic, a comedian. Apparently a pretty good one, but no one expected him to become this serious world leader. And yet uh, he did impress people with how he responded to the crisis. Um, and I think it's hard for me to envision some of the names that you mentioned being in his situation and responding in, in, a, in a way that would be comparably uh, Im impressive. And that just goes to show that it's only in moments of real crisis, not fake crisis, not manufactured crisis, real crisis, that you often see who is a truly important leader and who is not. Many are called, few are chosen. Um, we are speaking with Mershik Temkin, the author, a very interesting new book on political leadership, Warriors, Rebels, and Saints. Uh, Mershik, you're talking to me from France. You spent a lot of your, your time in France. You've written on... Um, Emmanuel Macron extensively. Uh, I'm not sure you're, uh, you've written any books on him, but, but, but you follow him quite closely. He actually, as it happens, a few years ago was on the show. 
charming mm. man. Uh, this was before he became uh, president of France. How's he doing? And are there any leaders left in the world? What What is your exhibit A for a successful leader? If it's not Joe Biden or Donald Trump or Zelensky in Ukraine, uh, who would it be? Well, so there's two questions. One is, how is Emmanuel Macron doing? Well, I mean, he won the, the elections, you know, the last election, he won re-election. Um, but there again, in all honesty, we see a crisis that is not exactly the same as what we see in the United States, but it has some parallels in that uh, Mr. Macron is not a particularly pr uh, popular president. Um, he has a strong base, a little bit like, uh, not it's not Mr. Trump's base, but it's a base. It's a his strongest support comes from uh, retirees, uh, especially wealthier retirees, and the private sector, the financial sector. Those are very strong bases. But in the first round of the presidential election, he actually won 27%. That's his base. And the two other candidates, one on the right, Marine Le Pen, and one on the left, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, each won about 23%. So the voters are really split between these three different these three different groups and what happened in the second round is that he was kind of voted in as a prevention measure by a lot of voters who simply don't want the extreme right Marine Le Pen to be in power um, so it's not that Macron is so popular it's more that voters in France prefer him uh, to this kind of more extreme uh, form of right-wing political leadership that was that was an offer in, in in the second round. So I would say that he, you know, is clinging to power. He is uh, he has his authority, but he doesn't have a lot of sway right now with the public. He doesn't have a lot of political capital to spend, and he's almost a lame duck president at this point. There's there's not that much that he can do publicly. So. Uh, I hate to sound pessimistic, but we are in a moment of crisis of leadership. By that, I mean not that we are in chaos or that there is, you know, collapse. But I mean that in France, in the United States, indeed, in Britain, I'm sure, and in many other places that I can think of, there is uh, this phenomenon that we see that even those who are elected into power, they're either elected to begin with, with a fairly low degree of public support and popularity, or they wind up with a very low popularity fairly quickly. And I think we have to diagnose why that happens. And part of why that happens, I think, is that we're increasingly in a world in which political leaders are either limited in what they can deliver, sometimes the things that they promise, right, or the things that they offer when, they're, when they enter public life and enter politics, um, and or they're constrained. They're constrained by the system. They're constrained by their own uh, short-term interests, by their own parties, by their competitors. Uh, and that, that that's a problem. That's a problem when the public becomes very disgruntled. What about uh, the rise of authoritarian leaders, whether they're authoritarian liberals? There's all sorts of words, terms to describe them. Everyone from Putin and Orban to Erdogan um, and uh, Modi. Aren't these leaders who are at least traditional? A lot of people love them. A lot of people hate them. Uh, are any of them models of successful leaders, even if we may not care for their politics? Well, among the, name you, the names you mentioned, there's, there's really 
two types. One is the Putins, where you have, you know, that's a society that's not really a democracy. You know, Russia is not really a democracy. It's it's a, a sort of a very, fairly authoritarian uh, system that revolves around his his authority. The more interesting, I think, in the more problematic cases that that we tend to obsess over is actually when in democratic societies that we think of as being even models of democracy, whether it's United States or France or India or you know Mexico, you know there are several other examples. Um, we have democratically elected uh, leaders who are quite authoritarian and sometimes even seem to be rejecting democracy, right? So the most obvious case is, I guess, Trump in the United States, but um, Mr. Modi in India has been accused of the same things. And even Macron that you mentioned before is quite authoritarian uh, in many ways, the way that he employs state power, the way that he behaves with the opposition. Uh, he he is, has authoritarian tendencies, although we don't think of him that way, the way we would think of an Orban uh, or a Putin. My take on this is that even in the West and even in democratic societies, um, elites and especially liberal elites, sometimes conservative elites, and in particular liberal elites, are very committed to the at least the idea of democracy, the forms of democracy, the institutions, and these sort of arrangements between institutions and checks and balances and so on. And they often expect the general public to be as committed to democracy as they are automatically. But we know from history that it doesn't work that way. A public doesn't necessarily prefer a democracy or authoritarianism. What the public wants is a leader who provides them with what they expect, what they need. And I'm sorry to be such a hardline materialist here, but I will boil it down to, I think, economic issues are very important. Material issues are very important. They don't always get the play that they deserve in our media, which is very focused on cultural issues, cultural disputes, things like that. But I strongly believe that the public will turn to the leader that they believe is addressing the material and economic issues that matter to them. And we see it in the United States, we see, we see it in France, we see it in India, and we see it in many other places. We're speaking with Moshik Temkin, uh, the author of Warriors, Rebels and Saints, The Art of Leadership from Machiavelli to Malcolm X. Um, I want to thank Liberties, uh, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, for helping bring this programming to all of you. We're going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back with uh, Moshik Temkin. I want to find some more positive models. We've rejected all the political leaders in the world, everyone from Trump and uh, Trump and um, Biden to uh, Orban and Modi, but I want to find some models from history of leaders that actually work. So don't go away, anyone. If you want to learn about political leadership, stay for about 33 and a half seconds. News, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas, it's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. 
Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Moshik Temkin, the author of Warriors, Rebels, and Saints. First half of this conversation, we talked about contemporary leaders who aren't really models of leadership. Uh, Moshik, the book, which is just out today, has a subtitle, um, The Art of Leadership from Machiavelli to Malcolm X. So let's start with the great man, Machiavelli himself. We've done many shows on him. I have to admit, I'm a huge fan. Did one show with Alexander Lee, one of uh, Machiavelli's best biographers. And it was actually a, a show about what Joe Biden can learn from Machiavelli after uh, the riots um, in, in, in January of 2021. Um, why begin with Machiavelli in this book? Well, I think the, the so just to clarify the Mach, uh, Machiavelli to Malcolm X, it's not just about the cr- chronology. It's really about where I begin the book and sort of where I where I end the book. I think Machiavelli is very. I mean, Machiavelli is very important for reasons that you've, you've covered, and I'm sure that many of your watchers, listeners know about. But for the purposes of what I was interesting uh, interested in, I wanted to examine at the this kind of moment in history in which uh, leaders understand and learn that they have the the power the agency to uh, determine their own fate as leaders and also the fate of others because up until that point we are more in a kind of biblical slash religious model where morality is a constraint and morality comes in the form really of god and religion and we are supposed to do good in the eyes of the Lord, that's what the Bible keeps telling us, that King A or King B rose or fell or succeeded because um, he pleased or did not please God. Um, And so the book begins actually with the story of King David uh, and the circumstances of his marriage with Bathsheba and everything that happens afterwards, which is a pretty horrifying sequence of events. And the Bible tells us that this all happened uh, because David sinned in the eyes of of, of his Lord. Uh, and that's really the model for how leaders should understand their role in the world. Right up until the time Machiavelli starts saying, well, uh, fortune, which is his way of talking about God, has a place and determines to some extent whether a leader will be successful or not. But what really determines whether a leader will be successful or not is what he, and he's just talking about he, what he does, what the prince does, the choices that he makes, the decisions that that, that he takes, the, the, the path that he goes down. Um, and so leaders can make their own history. And so I think Machiavelli is a kind of secular turning point and gives agency, individual leaders, uh, this great importance. But I also use Machiavelli as a, as a caution, in a cautionary way not to be critical of Machiavelli, but to say, wait, it's not just about what the individual does. It's not just about what the leader does. The leader always confronts uh, a, a historical circumstance, a historical context, right? So we have Karl Marx telling us in the 19th century that leaders uh, make history, men make their own history, but they do not do so under circumstances of their own choosing. They inherit 
structures, they inherit constraints that they have to deal with. And so that's why Machiavelli is my starting point. I wanted to kind of look at leadership as an individual level, because we are very interested in leaders, great men, also great women. But I also wanted to write about the crises that they confronted, and sometimes to look at the situation itself and how important it was in shaping a leader, but also what the leader had to confront. Um, Mushik, uh, you, you mentioned Machiavelli and fortune, the advice he gives to his prince in his most famous book, perhaps also his most controversial and misunderstood book. In that uh, advice, he, he tells the prince that fortune is a woman or fortune is like a woman and needs to be ridden. Um, and of course, many people uh, have interpreted this as a, a kind of a classic manifestation of patriarchy of one kind or another. Do you talk much about women and leadership or men and leadership? Uh, it's interesting. I know we're going to talk about Malcolm X uh, later, but uh, we had a show last year with Anna uh, Malika Tubbs, who mm -hmm. a best-selling book on the mothers of uh, MLK and Malcolm X and James Baldwin, how they shaped a nation. It's a wonderful book, The Three Mothers. Um, is there something very masculine about Machiavelli and our traditional notions of leadership and that idea of agency, of seizing fortune and riding it like a woman? Well, I think it's, it's more than just his language. I think it's the historical reality of who were the leaders that Machiavelli is writing to, writing about. It was, a, it was as it were, a man's world. Um, the leaders were, were men. Um, in a monarchical situation, uh, a woman could become a leader if there was no male heir. Um, and really, women only could become leaders if they uh, inherited power or the throne from a father, uh, primarily. So it's very much the exception that you would have women in power. So women had to fight for uh, entry into the political world in the first place. Wasn't obvious. Now, one way to look at it is through mothers and sisters and daughters and relatives of men, uh, important men, as, as this book does. And it's an interesting book, I agree. Um, but I was also interested in looking at the women who were uh, pioneers in making their own way. So uh, one chapter that I have is about the, the suffragists. The suffragists who fought for the right to vote. Now, today, we kind of in a democracy will take for granted that women have a right to vote, let's say in Britain or in the United States. Yes, women have the right to vote. But that's interesting. In history, we see that things that we take for granted today were not taken for granted in the past, and people had to fight for those things. The suffrage struggle took four generations. In the United States, it took almost 100 years of struggle uh, for them to get to vote. Um, and so I wanted to look at that struggle and I wanted to look at how it evolved over generations and the kind of choices that those women made to get involved in politics in the first place, to make the statement, right, that all men and women are created equal, right, adding to Thomas Jefferson's famous words in the Declaration of, of Independence. Now, when I say that to students today, I'm sitting in a co-ed, in front of a co-ed class and I say, all men and women are created equal. They'll look at me and say, duh, yeah, all men and women. But someone had to say that for the first time. They had to say it publicly, 
and then fight for it, right? So that is a kind of leadership that is extremely important in history. And the suffragists were eventually successful, at least in, in achieving the vote. And then I also write about leaders like Margaret Thatcher. So Margaret Thatcher, um, not only an important woman leader, arguably, in my view, the most impactful, significant political leader of her generation in the world, in my opinion, uh, mostly because not just of what she did in Great Britain itself, but also because of her um, sort of a psychic um, impact on how we think about our society, about how we think about our economy, about how people in the world think about their relation uh, to one another. Now, does it matter that Margaret Thatcher was a woman? Of course it does. Now, she always uh, downplayed, you know, she was rejected feminism. She didn't want to appoint women, in fact, to her own cabinet and was very, very contemptuous, uh, tended to be contemptuous of other women leaders and even women in politics, right? Um, but the fact that she was a woman, and not only that, she really made her own way because she didn't inherit uh, any power and her father was not a particularly important person um, is very significant. So we are a long way from the Machiavelli world where uh, it's not just his language, right? The kind of way that he's talking about mastering fortune and uh, so on. It's, it's also about the, that he takes for granted that we really are talking about a masculine world. We're now in a very different world and we have to acknowledge the kind of leadership that it took to change that. You ask in the book, uh, it's maybe the central question in the book, do leaders make history or does history make leaders? You know today in America that all the leaderships on the left and the right are dealing with fake problems. There haven't always been fake problems in America, of course. Uh, one leader who I know you write about in the book who you're interested in is FDR. What's your interpretation of FDR? Was FDR made by the Great Depression? We've had many shows. He's a fascinating man. We had Jonathan Darman, one of his biographers, who believed that mm. his personal crisis of polio created FDR. Others argue, like uh, Derek Liebart has a new book out on FDR, that uh, FDR was made by his four key lieutenants. What's your analysis of FDR? Why was FDR, I think most people apart from a few very obstinate conservatives, would acknowledge that he was a great leader. But was he a great leader because history called for him? I mean, had he, had he had the Great Depression, had there not been a Wall Street crash and a Great Depression, it's arguable he may never even been voted president. Yeah, good, good question. So I think we cannot talk about FDR without mentioning Herbert Hoover, his predecessor. So think about it this way. Herbert Hoover, elected president in 1928, a man who had never been elected to public office before. Upon his election in 1928, he was uh, probably the most widely admired public figure in the United States, both because of his entrepreneurship and his initiatives and his humanitarian efforts at the end of World War I. He was just seen as an extremely accomplished man who had built himself up. He came really from almost, you know, from a very modest background. It turns out that when crisis hit, when the Great Depression hit, and even today, people, including in the United States, do not understand just how bad that crisis was, how severe the depression was. It turned out that Herbert Hoover, was the right leader for peacetime, for time of stability. But when crisis hit, he was the wrong man at the wrong time for the wrong job. 
And when crisis hit, it was uh, FDR who turned out to be the right leader. He was elected uh, in 1932. Uh, he immediately hits the ground running. He's the most impactful U.S. president since Abraham Lincoln, especially in his early one, his famous first 100 days, um, and then probably the most impactful until the the Reagan, up until the, the Reagan era, uh, because FDR. Uh, even though FDR, interestingly enough, as you know, came from very insular, aristocratic American background, he grew up in the Hudson Valley, uh, upstate New York, as did uh, his wife, Eleanor, also an impressive person. Um, but it was strangely enough that upbringing which allowed him to create this kind of self innate self-confidence that kept him almost in a, a, a bubble of self-preservation, of calm, and of uh, ruthlessness that he had. Um, so uh, I don't know uh, how FDR would have functioned in peacetime, in times of stability, because FDR was never president in time of stability. He was a president during the Great Depression and then during World War II. So he was elected four times by the American people in landslide majorities each time. He had fierce opponents, by the way, he was controversial, because he himself in his time was considered to be quite an authoritarian, almost a dictator in the way that he handled opposition, in the way that he handled institutions that's, that tried to prevent him from enacting the New Deal, such as the Supreme Court. But FDR delivered to an overwhelming majority of the American people what they wanted and needed in a time of crisis. So that's why I say there are leaders that are created uh, and step up in a moment of crisis, I think FDR is exactly such a leader, but it's not enough. FDR also has to then master that crisis. He has to address. Well, but that the goes problems. without saying, doesn't it, uh, Marshik? I mean, um, it's not guaranteed that you're going to become a great leader in times of crisis. Right. I mean, there's Neville Chamberlain. There are many examples of of leaders in times of terrible crisis who who failed. Let's end. Uh, the subtitle of your book is "The Art of Leadership: From Machiavelli to Malcolm X." We've talked about Machiavelli. Let's end with uh, Malcolm X. You've written about him in other contexts as well. Mm -hmm. We did a show a couple of years ago with an old friend of mine, Peniel Joseph, a historian at um, uh, at the University of Texas in Austin. He has best-selling book, The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and MLK. He compares and contrasts both men, I think, as leaders. What is it about Malcolm X that makes him worthy of, of, of appearing in the subtitle? What, does, what can Malcolm X teach us alongside Machiavelli and FDR? Actually, Malcolm, I, although I put Malcolm X in the, in the subtitle, he, he is the... Uh, appears at the end of the book in juxtaposition uh, with Martin Luther King Jr. I'm, I add myself to the list of people who, who have done that, but I do it not to compare and contrast between them, but actually to show something that they had in common. Because my argument regarding both of them, although they differed uh, ideologically, strategically, they had very different views of what it meant to achieve liberation, to achieve equality, what uh, the, the, the actual problem facing African-Americans in the United States and in the world was, what I think they had in common was a collective conception 
of leadership and of what our world needs. So, well, I think that there have been leaders who are very individualistic, leaders who actually even focused in their own uh, politics, in their own viewpoints on the importance of individuality. So for example, Mrs. Thatcher, I think one of her uh, sort of signature statements is right the famous one, there is no such thing as society. There are only individual men and women and there are families. Um, that's only a snippet of what she said, but in there, there's a, a kind of a very influential message, right? That the, we're in it um, for ourselves, right? We are not a really a society that have automatic links between each other, but we are individualized, atomized people in this world and in the economy. And both MLK and Malcolm X, I think, had the contrary approach in which they argued that we are actually all linked together and that the, the progress, the success of a leader has to be measured not by his or her individual success or power, nor by just the what happens to specific individuals or even at the symbolic level, but the actual progress of, the, of an entire population. And that the idea was that in order to really measure progress, we have to look at how much has the public good been promoted. To what extent have we moved everybody towards a just world, towards a better world? And so while I think they differed, right, and there are very specific and important things to say about the African-American context and the political context in which they operated, um, I think what they had in common was this idea of collective leadership, that they were part of something larger than themselves. And in fact, they understood that even after their deaths, the struggle that they were involved with would continue. And they both had that in common. Both of them assassinated at age 39, 1965 and 1968. And both of them telling the world before they were assassinated that they were going to be killed. Right? And nevertheless, proceeding forward bravely in, in, in a massive yeah, way. It seems that it seems a little... I don't know, vague. I mean, self-serving, maybe, Mershik. Uh, finally. Uh, Wait, why Why does it seem vague? What's well, self-serving? I mean, the, the, they're including everyone. Malcolm X didn't include everyone, certainly in his followers. Then they have different senses of who they're leading, different senses of their community. Well, they were both leading the African-American community. But they were, they were looking, first of all, they weren't saying, well, because one African-American achieves a, a particular position, let's say, gets to the Supreme Court or becomes president or becomes a CEO, then that in itself represents success for the entire community. They didn't measure those things individually. They didn't measure it symbolically. They wanted to see overall progress. They wanted to see society itself transform. And that's really the difference for me between understanding progress at an individual level, at a symbolic level, and understanding it at a collective level. Well, but then Mrs. That's Thatcher could be included in that. I mean, everyone claims they want to improve society, don't they? No, no one's saying, well, I, don't, I don't want to improve this group or that group. I mean, even Donald Trump doesn't say that. Mrs. Thatcher said that there is no such thing as society. So how can you want to improve society if there is no such thing as society? Well, but you, she meant that polemically. I mean, she knew that there were... 50... She meant everything polemically. 
Bet she, she was. By the way, I don't mean that as a. I don't mean bet, that. Bet, she, uh, but she, she was. A, she was a con, what they call the conviction politician, right? Yeah, so, but she would yes, have. Um, uh, she would have acknowledged that there were fifty or sixty million people living in the United Kingdom when she was prime minister, and she wanted to make the quality of their life, the standard of living, better for everybody, didn't she? Uh, well, that's debatable, actually. Uh, I, so you might argue that, but then she was. She had a very. Uh, very individualized and particular way of looking at it, where she uh, valorized particular kinds of economic models over the other, which is which is le legitimate. But as you know, there are entire uh, communities and ways of life that she simply rejected as obsolete and sent them to the dustbin of, of history. And you could argue today whether, you know, all these people are better off now than they were then. That's a debate to be had. But I don't think that Margaret Thatcher talked about, you know, improving the life of every single in every single Britain in that sense. I think she talked about in very ideological terms about what was good for what kind of economy we should have, how we should envision the country moving forward. She was very nationalistic in that sense. Um, and you're right that a lot of politicians use that kind of language. But we have to do more than just pay attention to their words. We have to see what their deeds are what they actually do, what their policies are. That's a big problem that we have today. We focus too much on rhetoric and not, en not enough on action. Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, maybe your next book can be compare and contrasted, Mrs. Thatcher and Malcolm X. Finally, Moshik, uh, who's your, it's a very simple question, who's your favorite leader in history? It doesn't have to be the best leader. Who's, who's no. the one who, who captured your heart, your spirit, your imagination? Well, I think I, in the book itself, I have, FDR at the top in terms of formal head of state leadership for the reasons that you mentioned and also I think because of how he handled the Great Depression, how he handled World War II uh, and the legacy that he left. But I have to say that the leadership that interests me the most is not just the leadership at the very top because few of us are actually going to get there. The leadership that interests me the most is those who actually step up in more informal roles. And MLK is actually such a leader because he doesn't have formal institutional power. He's not the head of state. He doesn't have an army. He doesn't have any official capacity. But nevertheless, he's able to muster up a lot of power, right? And he's able to make dramatic change. So I'm fascinated always by how leaders can do that when they don't have that formal backing of institutions um, or you know power official power that can actually pr promote and push for what they're looking for